All right, you ready for this? Ready. So let me welcome to episode number 45 of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Thanks for joining us. You have in your little hands the biggest single episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Extra holiday weekend sized for you. I hope you enjoy it. We have not one, not two, but three guests to hear from today. In addition to my great podcast partner, Chris Newmarker, who we'll bring on in a moment. First, you're going to hear from the legend, Dean Kamen of Deca Research and Development Corporation sat down with a colleague of mine, Paul Heaney. Paul is the uh, VP and Editorial Director at Design World, and they host a online discussion series just like we do, just like our Device Talks Tuesdays. And Paul spoke with Dean Kamen this week. The series is called The Future of Design Engineering. And they talked about many different subjects, robotics, about Dean's career, about his work with high school students and fostering science and engineering in high schools. But one thing they talked about that I wanted to call attention to and share with you is a bit on 3D printable organs and some great work that Dean Kamen is doing with United Therapeutics. So we'll have a clip from that. And uh, I'll have some details later on about how you can watch the entire discussion. Really should. It was a great conversation. A little later in the program, we'll hear from Todd Pope. Todd, of course, is a familiar voice. He had been CEO of Transenterics, the surgical robotics company. Now he is CEO of WellAir. WellAir has developed a handheld instant UVC service disinfection device that can kill COVID and hospital-borne infections. So we'll talk with Todd about how he came to be involved with that company, what they're going to do to get this into hospitals, and what other markets uh, they're looking into, including schools and workplaces. So interesting new company, just went through an acquisition, and we'll hear all about it from Todd Pope. Finally, toward the end of the program, I'll have a conversation with Joe Mullings of the Mullings Group. I'm sure many of you know Joe from his videos and posts on LinkedIn. He is a executive recruiter, one of the better known in medtech, and certainly has built a name for himself in the media world as well with his videos and interviews. You can see him at many of the conferences with a, an extensive setup of cameras and lights. He's doing a great job of telling medtech stories We'll hear Joe's story, and we'll also hear what you can do to tell your story. So uh, stay tuned for that. Now, before I bring in Chris Newmarker, I did want to remind you that Device Talks Tuesdays is ramping up. We will be in full swing in March. We'll start bringing you week after week of great device content. Go to devicetalks.com for more information and, of course, to register. These are free. These are brought to you by our great sponsors and partners, and we would love to have you as part of the conversation. We'll have a chance not only to listen, but to ask questions and participate. So go to devicetalks.com. Now it's time to hear from my podcast partner, Chris Newmarker. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Good to be here as we move through this very, very cold February in Minnesota. 
Yes, give us uh, an eye an eyewitness weather report. Constant below zero temperatures. Sounds great. No one, no one in sight almost. So, so the lockdown is not a huge issue for you at the moment. Yes, you weren't going anywhere anyway. Yes, I think Minnesota's in its annual lockdown called a very cold winter. So we're having some uh, some time over here too. But uh, other than I, I've I've solved my riddle this morning. The riddle this morning was how can how can the temperature say on my phone say eighteen and the real feel be nineteen? Because I always thought real feels were less, but apparently. The humidity, even in the wintertime, can raise it a degree. That is or two. interesting. You know, I, I have noticed if it's very dry and cold, it doesn't feel as bad. And then yeah. you, you realize, yeah. oh, I'm freezing to death. But, you know, it feels fine. <laughs> I, oh, this is exactly how I wanted to go. I'm getting sleepy. This is, yeah. this is great. I'm going to take a nap in my backyard and just <laughs> let the darkness come. Yeah. So. <laughs> That was dark, Tom. That was, yeah, man, well, was, we all need some more vitamin D. That's what it comes yeah, well, down to. <laughs> got a little bit of a little sad going on, a little seasonal effect disorder, but we'll, we'll push through. I'm going to start writing poetry now. <laughs> yes, folks, if you start seeing the mass device stories in some kind of weird, freakish, iambic pentameter, you know, Chris has completely lost it. So. Everything on mass device from going forward will be in haiku. <laughs> <laughs> Let us hit. The new markers, newsmakers. Chris, you've got a. This is like the 27 freaking Yankees, and I'm a Red Sox fan. So. It pains me to even say that. Man, total murderers row today. Yep. I mean, number five on the list is only a $2.8 billion acquisition. So let's hit it. What is number five? No, it's Philips uh, completed its uh, acquisition of uh, Biotelemetry, $2.8 billion. And we're just seeing like a slew of multi-billion dollar mergers so far this year and in 2021 in the in the medical device industry. And, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, Biotelemetry is uh, develops diagnostics and mod monitors for heart rhythm disorders um, that includes wearable heart monitors. This is a very, uh, you know, very hot space right now. Um, you know, a lot, you know, the coronavirus pandemic, especially, it seems to have, you know, like really uh, gotten health providers to think more about how to remotely, uh, you know, monitor, monitor patients. And, you know, there's some feelings like this isn't going to, you know, like go away after the pandemic. And uh, Phillips is obviously making a bet that they want to you know, get their hands on more technology related to this. Well, I'm noticing that and we'll go through them, but three of the five stories this week have some sort of connectivity theme to them. So a lot of connectivity news right now. Yeah. So, all right, well, let's, uh, let's move on to number four on the new market newsmakers list. So number four on the list, we have Charles Chas McCann. He's going to be uh, joining Apollo Endosurgery as their new CEO effective March 1st. Uh, you know, Apollo, you know, they're in, uh, you know, kind of the intragastic gastric balloon business. Uh, McCann, you know, he's held uh, executive positions at uh, Boston Scientific and J&J. So, uh, you know, we've got like some, uh, some, some uh, good, you know, good, good personnel news story here, you know, and on Mass Device. All right, we'll take a break from our new markers, newsmakers, to hear from Dean Kamen of DECA. Once again, Dean was interviewed by my colleague Paul Heaney over at Design World. If you'd like to listen to the entire interview, and I do recommend it, we'll post the link on our show notes. Just click on that link, and you can register for free and watch the whole thing on demand. Now, let's hear from Dean Kamen. All right, we've got some good uh, viewer questions coming in, Dean. And I know uh, a lot of people are interested in the uh, 3D printing organs. Uh, my, my colleague, Leslie Lang, now, uh, she recently did a, a podcast with Chuck Hull, who is the CTO of 3D Systems. And they've been working with uh, United Therapeutics on 3D printing a transplantable lung. Now, I know you've been doing some work in that area. And actually, speaking of United Therapeutics, uh, I hear you have a... Uh, 
some significant news that came out uh, this morning. So could you talk about that news and then let us know a little more about your efforts in uh, 3D printing organs, which, again, five, ten years ago, I mean, I think that was that was science fiction. Well, that science fiction is now very, very real science, and it's kind of unbelievable. It's in that category of this only happens to Dean, that it was this morning at 6 o'clock before your your uh, event of this afternoon, which we wouldn't have been able to talk about it, but at six yeah. o'clock this morning, United Therapeutic announced to the world a miniature wearable piece of technology that we've developed uh, with them over many years now to deliver one of their fantastic uh, uh, medications to deal with PAH, pulmonary arterial hypertension, which they created to solve a major problem. Um, but their company was founded by uh, Martin Rothblatt, who is nothing short of a force of nature. And in addition to working on this project with them, from the moment we met the folks, uh, the scientists at United Therapeutics, we saw them doing all sorts of work to use the, the advanced uh, capabilities of their, in various fields of engineering to help create alternative to the biologic lung, for instance. And one of their methods of uh, moving that forward was to 3D print the scaffold of the structure of a lung out of biologically inert materials like collagen. And then take that precise, incredibly finely uh, defined structure that was well beyond the capacity of any normal 3D printer to come close to doing, and reinfuse into it uh, essentially uh, uh, stem cells that would, in that environment, evolve into creating a fully functioning working organ, in that case, a lung. And you mentioned uh, you did an article on one of the many, many companies that's doing. 3D printing, namely 3D systems, I'm happy to tell you that you picked a winner there because Martine Rothblatt and the folks at United Therapeutics early on teamed up with that particular company. And just down the road, a couple of buildings down in one of my other buildings, United Therapeutics has an operation in which they have one of the most advanced 3D systems printers, and they are producing uh, these lungs Right now, they're in development of these lungs down there, and it's unbelievable. And in the building right next door, in the other direction, we have the headquarters of an organization called ARMI, A-R-M-I. We call it ARMI with an M-I because I owe it to the Department of Defense, ARMI, because they gave us the initial $80 million a few years ago with a mission of bring the world of of advanced engineering capabilities to the world of, of science, the, the, the miracles in the Petri dishes around the medical schools in this country. In this Petri dish at that university, they're producing cells that'll make insulin. Hey, we can make a pancreas. In this university, they're producing cells that uh, will purify. Hey, we can, we can make nephrons. We can make an artificial kidney. In this one, you can poke into their Petri dish in their med school and watch electrical activity. We're making nerves. Maybe we can take the paralyzed, you know, we can, we can make a short circuit uh, go away, or we can add a circuit back to somebody's spinal column and, and eliminate 
uh, all sorts of, of, of neurological issues. But all of these major university uh, uh, miracles are happening at the scale of, of, of research. And none of them are going to spontaneously all by themselves jump out of those Petri dishes, develop, you know, the smokestack industry that'll turn those few cells into a complete functioning liver or kidney or lung or pancreas. It's just not going to happen. So the Department of Defense said, hey, Dean, you're, you're connected to the engineering community around the country, the robotics companies. Bring them together, expose them, bring them together and create a coalition with all these advanced uh, medical uh, uh, facilities and figure out how to create an industry that will scale up these medical miracles into being available. Uh, I formed a five person board of directors to do that. And one of those five di initial directors a few years ago when we did it was Martine Rothblatt of United Therapeutics. Another was, by the way, the founder of Boston Scientific. Another was the president of WPI, the university. Another was the chairman and CEO of Rockwell Automation. I wanted industry people. I wanted medical people. I wanted university people. I wanted visionaries and entrepreneurs like Martine. So they're headquartered next door. And it, even though it's only a couple of years old now, you know, it took me 30 years to get up to 3,700 corporate sponsors for our first robotics in this giant coalition, not-for-profit, volunteer-driven uh, organization. But in a couple of years, we've pretty much picked up every major med school in the country and every major company, whether they're big pharma or, or entrepreneurial companies that want to create engineering solutions to these organ shortages. But Little Army now, in a couple of years, has now got 170 members. It's gotten funding and more funding from health and human services and even more new funding from department of defense and a lot of these big companies including of course as i said uh united therapeutics so so you you, you hit you you, you hit a, a magic chord when you said hey 3d printing 3d systems uh, 3d printing uh united therapeutics 3d printing one going one direction and we've got army advanced and we call, as I said, ARMI, A-R-M-I, Advanced Regenerative Manufacturing Institute. Just like FIRST is a, is a set of letters that mean something, ARMI is about advanced regenerative manufacturing. Uh, and we think uh, Silicon Valley will be on the West Coast for a long time to come. Uh, we want to be Carbon Valley on the East Coast. We want this little mill yard we're in. Uh, to do for organ manufacturing, what bringing together all the skill sets uh, on the West Coast did to create the semiconductor industry that gave us a digital world that changed the way uh, we live. If we can create the ability to quickly start manufacturing replacement human organs, um, the impact of that on quality of life, cost of, of healthcare, will transform uh, what most people are worried about in terms of the future of healthcare in this country. You took the word out of my mouth. I was going to say that would be transformative for the for the human race, Dean. What what would you say is the biggest challenge you're running into right now that to, to stop us from having a manufacturing line spinning out lungs every two minutes? So that's a really really good question. Everybody involved in Army that's deeply and and frenetically working at the piece that's not quite there yet. Everybody would tell you. 
The hardest part is the one that they're having trouble with. But there's some of the biology that those biology folks, and I'm no biologist, don't really understand. Why did these cells take this turn and not that turn? Why did they differentiate themselves in a way that we don't like? It, it almost got there, but it, it took the wrong turn. The folks making sensors say, we know how to sense pressure and pH, and but we can't sense certain things at a biological level that matter. Others will say, we don't even know what matters. What, what do we have to measure and what are we looking for? And, and the 3D printing, uh, can it do it at scale? Can it do it fast enough? Can it do it with enough precision? Do we have the right materials? Um, there's no shortage of, of opportunities to, to move us uh, to making more organs more quickly, more reliably, more cost-effectively, and we're moving very, very fast. But it's not at all a mature industry. We're not starting with a platform of we can already do it, we're trying to do it a little better. We're starting with 10 years ago, as you said, it was a pipe dream, and now we have, with one of our little closed systems, at our last time we were able to convene everybody. The last time we convened nearly 170 members at our annual meeting was a year ago, just before COVID, and we showed them a closed system that was able to produce a seven centimeter long segment, bone, ligament bone, that could be put into somebody that needed an ACL, a very common surgery. And that entire system was grown in this closed system in which we had to bring together some existing technologies, closed loop control systems on bioreactors that we had to make way more sophisticated than the, let's say the dumb ones that but then we had to invent some other things, sensor technology and processing technology. And then we had to get all the people that understood the biology to come and put the recipes into the different phases of this thing to urge these little iPSCs, induced pluripotent stem cells. You know, a stem cell can grow up to be whatever it wants to be. But why did that cell become an eyeball and the other one a toenail? Why did this one become a neuron and that one a nephron and this one a beta cell? There are some biology folks that have pretty damn good answers to those things, and they are now part of the team that's helping the engineers orchestrate all these different pieces so that we can credibly and relatively soon credibly say, we're going to be able to take the next closed system. We think by next year, we're going to have one of those systems sitting in that next building that will be making miniature, little, functioning, beating hearts of the size of a, a pediatric heart. Now, that's nowhere near ready to put through the Food and Drug Administration, give it to a surgeon and put it into a human. There's a lot of work that would have to happen before that. But if 10 years ago we said to people, oh, yeah, next year, come on back. And at our next big annual meeting, you're going to see a closed system that uh, started with some cells and some printed structures that went into this closed system. And 42 days later, out came this miniature uh, beating uh, pump, this heart muscle. You would have said, we're nuts. Now we're anticipating that we're going to do that. Once again, the difference between science fiction and science is timing. Hey everyone, Tom here. Welcome to this latest installment of the Two Minute Detox. Very happy to have Jacob Schroeder of Finnegan here. Jacob is in Finnegan's Palo Alto office and we talked about trade secrets. I hadn't realized that uh, the way we're working via Zoom and other methods may have exposed some trade secrets to folks who you don't want to expose secrets to. In this conversation, Jacob will share what you should do about it. 
Let's list. A trade secret is any concrete information that is not generally known, derives independent economic value from not being known, and is subject to reasonable efforts to maintain secrecy. Today, I'll focus on that last element, subject to reasonable efforts to maintain secrecy. This element is important for two reasons. First, if you do not take reasonable efforts, a court may determine that you do not have a trade secret at all and that you're not entitled to legal protection if someone takes it. Second, and perhaps more importantly, if you fail to take reasonable efforts, you increase the odds that your trade secrets will fall into the hands of a competitor. Think about one of the most commonly cited examples of a trade secret, the recipe for Coca-Cola. According to legend, it is written on a piece of paper and is stored in a purpose-built vault at Coke headquarters in Atlanta. The recipe is apparently known to only two senior executives. Now, nobody would question that Coke has taken reasonable efforts to maintain the secrecy of that recipe. Now, let's pivot to our industry, med tech. In an effort to stay open and operating during the pandemic, many companies have had to quickly position themselves to support 100% remote work, meaning many of your company's most confidential secrets, source code, schematics, competitive intelligence gathering, are accessible from anywhere. And with virtual meetings, many of your company's meetings are now potentially open for unseen eavesdroppers whether by sophisticated hackers, inadequate restrictions being placed on the meeting or its recording, or simply to family members in your employees' houses. Now that we have caught our stride in managing remote work, I'd like to encourage each of you to think about any risks to your company's trade secrets given the recent expansion of remote access to your company's information and daily operations. Specifically, are your trade secrets still subject to reasonable efforts to maintain secrecy? It is easy to have blind spots when it comes to this type of critical assessment which is why many of our clients seek our counsel in this critical review to ensure that their trade secrets remain secret. A complete plan should involve not only an assessment of your company's trade secrets, but also your IT infrastructure and employee education about maintaining them in an era of remote work. It was great to hear from our friends at Finnegan. Thank you, Jacob Schroeder. Tune in next week. We'll have another installment of the two-minute detox. For more information about Finnegan, go to Finnegan.com. Chris Newmarker, bring on number three. All right. So number three on the list is we've got Medtronic is, uh, you know, touting a, a newborn study that involved its Nelcor pulse oximity tech. And they're kind of like promoting the study saying that it's, uh, you know, showing that this, uh, this technology is, uh, is is really competitive against uh, what uh, Massimo is uh, is offering. Um, you know the study. You know results. Uh, you know showed uh, that. Uh, well, here's what Medtronic is claiming. They're saying that 60 newborns presented a stable signal with the Nelcor device, while only 55 newborns presented a s- stable signal with the uh, Massimo pulse ex- oximeter. So you know some uh, looks like we got some some competition going on the neonatal pulse oximetry space. You know so you know we we actually did reach out to Massimo and didn't get a uh, you know, immediate comment on the you know results of the study. But you know, we'll- it's an interesting space to see uh, to see some some heady competition. So uh, we'll see where that where that develops. I mean, we've obviously seen uh, ventilators and respirators take center stage uh, over the past year. I mean, all these things that I think all these quote unquote sleepy areas never thought about before uh, were certainly gaining a new appreciation of. Yes, I mean definitely like all these conditions we have to treat with COVID. It's just um, you know we're, we're all of a sudden getting a new appreciation for uh, you know being you know basically being able to breathe. So it's, it's pretty amazing. It is pretty amazing, and that's a great segue. Now let's hear from Todd Pope, as I explained up at the top. Todd is the new CEO of a newly formed company called Wellair. 
Well, Todd Pope, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. It's great to join you again. Well Air is uh, the acquiring company of UV Innovators, and I think you were with UV Innovators prior. So bring us just up to date on uh, on what you've been up to over the past uh, the past couple of years. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, the last uh, going on two years, I've been in private equity uh, in med tech space, and it's a fantastic opportunity to really look across a broad spectrum of investment ideas and uh, utilize some different business muscles, if you will, because you're not focused on just one thing. Mm-hmm. One thing that we saw long before COVID that we invested in was uh, hospital-acquired infections. The data uh, is roughly in the magnitude, Tom, of about $40 billion are spent every year in U.S. healthcare alone on HAIs, you know, patients that um, contract something while they're in the hospital that they didn't come in with. And then dealing with those patients, whether it's MRSA or C. diff, now COVID is a... um, is a it's a huge expense uh, for the hospital and obviously the patient didn't come in to have that dealt with they've got other comorbidities so uv light has been used um, for many years to combat viruses and bacteria it's very effective but most of the products over the last 10 years have been tall about three to five feet tall tom and they're large like mercury based lamps kind of older technology and you would have to clear out a room and then turn them on by remote and they would run around the room or roll around the room and kind of bathe the room in light for anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes. Hmm. That's kind of the high level solution. Um, certainly effective at doing what's called a terminal clean after a patient checks out of a room. But what hospitals kept telling us is we started to work in that area three or four years ago. It would be better if you could have a smaller device that you could put in your hand that would be portable, that would be more effective quicker and not have to wait 15 or 20 minutes. That was kind of the feedback we got from the market. Mm -hmm. And so UV Innovators uh, went out and hired two seasoned executives Dr. Nick Middendorp, who kind of did a lot of foundational work at Cree Lighting, which they were really um, pioneers in the LED lighting space. And then Steve Grennan, who is a founder at Tier Science, who you may be familiar with. They end up selling to J&J yes. in the past. So the three of us kind of came together here in the Triangle of North Carolina and said, let's take this problem of UV lights are effective to try to battle viruses and bacteria in the hospital, but they want a different form factor. So this was this was pre-COVID? Pre-COVID, yeah. This was about three and a half years ago yep. because the problem is immense in the healthcare field with hospital-acquired infections. Gotcha. So in short, what we did was there's a lot of handheld UV devices out there that just don't pass muster. They're more of a um, commodity-type product. We wanted to build, and you know my background, a medical device-grade product. And basically, our um, product design features were it needed to be less than two pounds. It needed to run off batteries so you didn't have to plug it in. And it really needed to try to tackle the uh, top, you know, viruses and bacteria on CDC's list. And we need to inactivate them in um, you know, one second or less. It needs to be instantaneous. We invested quite a few millions of dollars in the project, and we got that solved, Tom. We uh, launched the product about four months ago under the UVI brand called NuvaWave, and it fits that product design ideally. How is it superior to what's currently out there? What makes it metal device grade? Well, a couple things. It's very different than the main uh, products that are in hospitals, which are large towers that often cost $100,000 or more, maybe takes 15 or 20 minutes to you know tackle an entire room. Our product 
is handheld and it can inactivate things in, in one second or less. So there's nothing that we've seen in the handheld market that has our form factor that's driven by LEDs. So it's not mercury with some of the dangerous, you know, chemicals that are in mercury based lamps. It produces no heat and it has instantaneous results. Those are kind of the answers to your question that makes it what we call more of a medical grade type product. And we haven't really seen a handheld UV product that um, offers those kind of features and benefits. And we've had incredibly strong reception in the healthcare field. I would just say, Tom, that when we were out over the last three or four months in the healthcare field, we continue to hear from hospitals and ambulatory surgery centers and long-term care facilities. They said, look, uh, surface disinfection by deactivation, like you do with Nuvoi, is fantastic, but we need to couple it with something for the air. Mm -hmm. The reason we're all wearing masks uh, around the world is because COVID is aerosolized, but so are many other things, Tom, that are, you know, dangerous to humans. You know, a lot of these viruses and bacteria can be aerosolized. They said, do you have a solution for air purification? Because we're worried about that uh, paramount. So, we went out, uh, looked at all the companies around the world that were selling air purification. Similar, there's a lot of new entrants that sell what I would call lower end price point products. We were looking for a product that was in the uh, top end of technology and efficacy. We found Well Air, um, based out of Dublin. They've got a Connecticut office. They've been around eight or nine years. And what caught my attention, other than their great technology and their success over the last couple of years, pre-COVID and post-COVID, is they had just recently gotten approval from the FDA. And we thought this would be a great partner for us. We talked to the company and their investors, and we said, could we come together and have a partnership? And again, to make a long story fairly pointed, we got together and they said, look, we should bring these companies together. We just shouldn't have a commercial partnership. Let's, let's acquire UVI and a part of that acquisition, they asked if I would come on and lead the, um, the new co. So was there were any cash or anything included in that acquisition or was it all stock that you're all kind of one happy jointly owned entity now? Yeah. I mean, we haven't really commented on the deal, but we, we wanted it to be an equity deal because we feel like the value of this company is going to increase exponentially because of the combination, the macro factors that we're all going through globally and the technology suite. Does this remain a hospital-based infection company or does the uh, does addressing the air broaden its potential? Yeah, it's the latter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a great point. Air is important to all of us, what we breathe. If I could just take a quick pause, Tom, and tell you a few things that stick out to us. You know, our lungs are the only organ that are consistently exposed to the environment all day and all night, but we don't have really any protection for them. You know, we take, you know, thousands of breaths each day and each night, and we're exposing our lungs to uh, whatever we're breathing in, whatever particulate virus, bacteria. And as we know, many of these dangerous, you know, variants out there are aerosolized, they're in the air. When you look at that, Tom, that's more than just a hospital-based, ambulatory surgery base. We're all concerned with the way um, our air is being uh, treated and hopefully uh, made safer. So this company has been around for eight years, long before COVID. Uh, well Air has technology on the plasma side, under the Plasma Air brand that can go into ducts 
to duck work uh, of larger hospitals, larger buildings, plants, commercial, all the way down to residential. So we have a in-duct system and we also have a stand-up system under the Novaris brand that can go in hospital rooms, ORs, but it can just as easily go into an office, uh, a sports locker room, commercial real estate application. So the answer to your question is yes, we are leading with healthcare, but we're broadening out to um, many other verticals because of the technology's acceptance. So I'm, lo- I'm on Amazon right now. I'm, I'm looking for room air purifiers, room air cleaners. I mean, there's a thousand of them out there. What is, uh, what is unique about this? That's a great point. I mean, first of all, our FDA approval separates us out from the vast majority of players that are trying to capitalize on the space. Secondly, you can you hear a lot about HEPA filters and MERS filters, and, and it's great to have a tightly woven fabric filter that catches particulates. But I make the analogy, you know, in our home, when you finally get around to changing those filters and you're always amazed at uh, how much dust and dirt are on them and you have to carefully carry them out to change them. Mm-hmm. Imagine a uh, HEPA filter changing that out, um, and that filter is simply catching the SARS-2 COVID virus or anything else in the air. It really just colonizes them in the filter. What we like to talk about is our NanoStrike technology that's inside our Novaris product. It actually has um, plasma-based energy that eradicates those viruses and bacteria as soon as the air is pulled across these coils. So you don't have to worry about capturing live virus. You're um, you're immediately deactivating it, um, you know, at the nano level. So it's much more than a filtration technology. It's making sure that the air that comes through there is uh, clean and pure compared to what came in. So those two things are, are what separate us out from almost every other technology that you could find out there. So what is the next step? How are you addressing the healthcare market? Is that where you're going to go first? Yeah, well, the thing that most people don't realize about this company is it. Um, you know, we're private, so we don't disclose our financials, but the company has very strong revenue growth over the last year or two. So this is not a, a startup. This is a company that has uh, got a very strong commercial engine. We have uh, placed over 50,000 units uh, around the world, Tom. So the uh, technology has been well accepted prior to covid and you can imagine, um, you know, really on an accelerated uh, run right now. So we, none of this is what we'll talk about is first, but what we're going to focus on is definitely healthcare, both in the U.S. with our FDA approval and around the world, our continued focus on healthcare. And then we're also going to be looking outside in commercial and even some, uh, you know, residential applications. So the technology is going to be a little bit unique from a healthcare company. Because look, clean air is healthcare, right? We, Tom, I think you and I are used to companies that define healthcare as like you're selling something to the hospital, mm-hmm. maybe to the surgery center. We're going to do that, but our technology has reached across many other verticals, and we're headlong into doing that right now. And, and final question: What about what's the the price point? Are you going to be able to? Is this something that schools could look at? Uh, uh, homes, as you mentioned, homes. I mean, is it something that's going to be affordable? Yes, we have thousands of schools that are utilizing the technology, and as we're seeing, just like we're seeing here in the U.S. with the CARES Act and other um, you know programs, governments around the world are focused on providing 
an influx of capital to make sure people can safely get back to normal. So um, we are going to have price points down from the, you know, just under $1,000 range all the way up to a $10,000 device. And a lot of the price range, Tom, depends on how big the room is and how much air we want to turn over uh, through the system. And so we have a, a quite a few different SKUs that can address uh, multiple size rooms and multiple different verticals. So we're, we're certainly excited about that. We've had uh, upwards of 30 um, different studies done by uh, NASA and others. So we've got great uh, clinical data. And, and as I said, we've got incredible number of uh, very satisfied, you know, customers, patients, clients around the world in a lot of different verticals. We're just going to, you know, we're, we're just going to put the accelerator down now uh, for sure. And I think me being brought in, we've had a fantastic leader in uh, Kevin Devlin uh, over in Europe. Kevin's going to stay with the company and continue to work uh, with me and the company. He's done a great job. My experience in healthcare. Um, I think it's just to really accentuate, you know, the, the kind of focus that we're going to put on the company um, from a commercial standpoint. Just to, to circle back on healthcare, and then uh, and then we'll wrap up. What is it that you're offering hospitals? What is the the value add for them? Are they turning, uh, getting things cleaner? Are they turning rooms around more quickly? What is your selling point? It's a great point. Right now, they're struggling. They feel like they're probably using too many chemicals because that's kind of the easy button to use more and more chemicals. Right now, some of our applications that are um, most urgent that hospitals are utilizing first, when they have any procedure in the operating room that produces any kind of aerosol, whether you're drilling or, you know, you have um, laparoscopic procedures that have CO2 and, you know, you lose that um, air to high pressure, they're worried about their staff. They're worried about aerosolizing uh, COVID and other things. So to be able to put this in an OR, it's fantastic. The surgical smoke that's generated from an OR uh, procedure, uh, we know that has carcinogenic uh, properties. This is uh, another way to, you know, have a good safety net for the folks that are in the OR, but the patient and the staff. Next, they're taking it where people are positive for COVID. We know when people are positive for COVID, there's no reason to wait five or six or seven days for them to check out of the hospital. Hospitals are putting these right into the room where people have COVID and they have to uh, use an incredible amount of PPE. This gives them the um, peace of mind and the data is behind it that they're going to be able to provide a safer, cleaner environment for the staff coming in and out. So uh, not hopefully as much PPE usage. And then anything that they're triaging patients, Tom, the ER, how do we know what people have when they come in the ER to be able to have an ER that's turning over air through this Novaris device uh, gives them great comfort and they can uh, be much more efficient with, you know, processing a patient. So, you know, time, the way they spend on PPE, their chemical budget has gone through the roof. Chemicals are, you know, hard on surfaces. They really can't be used effectively on anything other than a hard non-porous surface. And there's many other things like a curtain in a room or whatnot that, you know, you need to be able to protect. So we really are just providing, um, much more of a inclusive solution than they're having to uh, resort to today. And we're getting great, great reception at the uh, healthcare level. Excellent. Well, it sounds like uh, an important company. I look forward to tracking its progress. Uh, Todd Pope, thanks for joining us in the podcast. Thank you very much. All right. It's great to hear from Todd Pope, Chris Newmarker. Now it's time to bring us home. What is number two 
on the list of new markers, news makers. Hey, number two, uh, our uh, associate editor, Sean Hooley, uh, interviewed uh, Mike Coyle, who, uh, you know, recently, uh, you know, left, uh, you know, Medtronic after after years there to uh, take over a CEO of uh, iRhythm. And uh, just just a really uh, good interview, good insights on, you know, on, on why he's excited about this company and uh, you know, why he uh, left Medtronic to run it. I mean, they're they're in this very uh, cool space right now of, you know, companies that are, you know, coming out with alternatives to those, you know, you know, old school holder monitor monitors that they used to, you know, send people that they've, you know, sent people home with, you know, when they're trying to monitor whether they have a heart arrhythmia. And uh, I mean, you know, iRhythm has a, a device that's a much lower profile, you know, can, uh, you know, can monitor somebody for a much longer period of time, um, especially after the the COVID pandemic. I mean, it looks like the demand for these things are going up. Um, you know, we've, we've heard from analysts who said that, you know, this is uh, this is a space definitely to watch. Absolutely. No, iRhythm is a great company. We definitely love to get uh, Mike Coyle on the podcast sometime. And it kind of goes back to our science is the difference between science fiction and science being just a matter of timing, because these are all things that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, you and I would have just dreamed of. And now we're actually seeing things like iRhythm come to pass. Exactly. And uh, the number one item I think is is another one of these instances where I'm excited to see where sensor technologies will take us over the next decade. It's going to be really something to go. So bring us uh, bring us in a number one, Chris. Well, you know, number one, and, uh, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, right now on uh, on Thursday, and this just, uh, you know, posted on uh, Mass Device and Medical Design Outsourcing. But, uh, you know, I had an interview with, uh, with you know, Dr. Bill Hunter, who's the uh, CEO of Canary Medical. And this is a startup based in British Columbia that's working closely with Zimmer Biomet on the uh, the uh, smart knee implant that uh, the uh, Zimber Biomed is expected to launch uh, later this year, and uh, just I mean, frankly, this is really cool technology. I mean, it's uh, you know this this is basically a sensor that is the size of a AAA battery that they can you know fit inside the tibial extension of you know of a of a knee implant, and uh, this this thing just you know broadcasts regularly broadcasts data on you know on all kinds of, you know, useful things for, uh, you know, for, for the doctors. I mean, not just steps, but, you know, gait, balance. And, you know, it's, it's, and the other good thing too, that, that just really struck me about this technology was that, you know, every time I go to a conference and they talk about, uh, you know, digital health technology, they say like, you know, the less that the people who are using it have to do with it, the better. I mean, think about all the, you know, the, you know, my Fitbit, I only use half the time because the battery runs out and I need to charge it. You know, th- this this device, I mean, it's in your knee. It's got a pacemaker maker battery that could last for up to 20 years. It's just going to broadcast this data. And all you have to do is have this uh, this home hub that's plugged into your, in, you know, plugged in at your house. That's just going to like wow. consistently upload this data without you doing anything. And, you know, and, and, you know, and the hope is that eventually like you could use AI and your doctor could, you know, contact you and tell you that you've got a knee infection before you know you have a knee implant infection, or it could tell you that you're having a problem with the implant before you know that you're having a, a problem with the implant. And well, once again, that's a great top five. I think we hit upon several big stories there. Any one of them could have been number one in a usual week. So uh, keep the keep the good stories coming, folks. You can find all of this on Mass Device. If you were checking out Mass Device, oh. you would have read all these stories already, and, and you wouldn't need to be listening to this uh, this that's foolish right. podcast. But we're glad yeah, you're we're here. Glad, we're glad you're spending time with us. But yeah, you know, subscribe <laughs> to the Mass Device newsletter. I mean, you don't miss out on this stuff. Yes, don't miss out. Please do subscribe to our Mass Device and MDO newsletters. Now it's time to bring in 
Joe Mullings. As I mentioned at the top of the podcast, Joe is an executive recruiter extraordinaire. He's been in the business for a very long time, has a lot of thoughts and interesting observations about our industry. Let's listen. Well, Joe Mullings, welcome to the podcast. Good to be here. Thanks for having me on. It's uh, it's amazing that we haven't talked uh, in the past, even just bumped into each other here and there. I have seen you uh, at conferences. It's hard to, to miss the the lights and the cameras and all the action going on on your uh, your sites. It's really an impressive operation. So I want to I want to get into that. Obviously in the middle of this conversation, but I like to start these talks, just figuring out how people found their way into this very cool industry of ours. Uh, you are an engineer by education. Have you ever, were you working as an engineer at one point? Yeah, yep. I did about two and a half, three, uh, actually three years as an engineer. I started out uh, at a university of Dayton, Ohio, a mechanical engineer, and I worked for a company called Loral Fairchild back in Syosset, New York and Long Island. Ah. Uh, electro-optics and primarily target acquisition systems, heads-up displays that you see in the front of a jet in the uh, through the windscreen. Uh, so I worked on those for a few years. And then I went to work for a Swiss screw machine company uh, as a marketing guy, uh, product development engineer in marketing, and then got out of engineering after that, went to the dark side of recruiting. <laughs> Talk to, I love talking about these transitions. What uh, what happened? Why did you decide not to be an engineer anymore? Yeah, well, I, I still am an engineer. You know, it's like when you tell somebody they were in the <laughs> Marines. No, they're always a Marine, right? So <laughs> I'm always an engineer. I look at everything like an engineer. I have designed my businesses like an engineer, uh, my workflow in our organization. I look at raw materials, cost of goods, you know, workflow, uh, engineering change notices, like if I'm going to change one process to another. Um, but I, I worked in an aerospace company and one day I was sitting around the table and with some really bright people, uh, and you know, the head of engineering was there and, um, he was, he was half miserable in his job. And, and, and I was like, gosh, if, if that's, if that's the bar that's set that I have to hit, I'm not sure that's what I want to aspire to. No, I didn't know the startup world at the time. You know, startups mm. were not cool in 1984, 85, 86. Um, when I was an engineer, I got out of school in 84. And so I just, uh, I bailed. You know, I got out of the business and uh, rolled around in life for a couple of years. That's a story for another time. And then um, walked into a headhunter's office one day, Sebastian Lavolsi, and said, Seb, find me a job. And um, after about two hours of an interview, he says, do you ever think about doing this? And I said, mm, not really, but how much did your top sales guy make last year? He told me, I said, when do I start? And so that's, <laughs> that's how I got started. That's that's a very good reason to make the transition. That's And that's an interesting story too. I had a similar experience with uh, with newspapers. Um, I was in, started in newspapers and saw people in their my age now, 40s and 50s, they felt they looked unhappy and stuck. And I was like, that's what I'm working toward. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like that's the dream right there. Not all of them, of course, but of course. some of them. And uh, I'm glad I made the change. Same. So, how did you then? Uh, did you immediately start working in medtech? Because when you when you began doing uh, search and recruiting, I think medtech was really just starting to emerge. Obviously, Medtronic was around. The big ones were around, but startups hadn't become a thing yet. Yeah. So I started out um, the the desk that uh, the uh, owner put me on, Sebastian put me on, was uh, just a general engineering desk since that was right in my, you know, in my back pocket. But in particular, you ready for this? Valves in the aerospace industry. That was my desk specialty. 
So, <laughs> you know, Parker Hannafin, uh, Murata Scientific, uh, Moog up in uh, 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 Skinny Atlas or Aurora, New York, actually. And, and then there was this one little company called Valcor Engineering in Springfield, New Jersey. And Valcor, beside doing aerospace valves, they also did small valves for the scientific instrumentation industry and not quite medical device. And so I struck up this great conversation with the principal of his name was Lee Walters, still near and dear to my heart. And he was a, when I was a young guy and I called him as a headhunter, you called unsolicited into the companies. And he said, uh, uh, I started pitching to him and uh, he said, well, I don't need a headhunter. And, and uh, the phone went dead and I called him back. I said, we must've got disconnected. He said, no, I hung up on you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I stayed on the phone with him or I kept him on the phone and he gave me my first opening. It was like this slot that he couldn't fill in Valcor Scientific was these little micrometering valves. He said, if you can fill this, we'll see what happens. And, you know, you know, worked my tail off, filled it. And then uh, from there, he was my first big client and we ended up becoming good friends after that. And he got me into med tech because from there, I had to obviously recruit in all of these other micrometering valve companies up in the Northeast. Uh -huh. And then I started looking at it and I'm like, wait a minute, this is an industry that the population's gonna continue to get old. Um, it's got a, and again, I'm an engineer. I, I prefaced that before I started this. Um, Technology is always gonna seek your higher ground. Um, it's got a built-in modulating governor to it, meaning it'll never grow too fast and it'll never therefore crash and burn like dot-com or the mortgage bu bubble. And, you know, people are always going to get sick. So there's something to this. And I knew the barrier to entry was going to be very high because the more research I did into it, I saw that, you know, you had different therapies, obviously, you know, neuro, interventional cardiology, ortho, and then all the functional roles. And you had to understand the disease states. So I said, if I start a search firm that is only focused on med tech, I'm going to have no competition because it's too darn hard. Wow. And then uh, that's what kicked it off to a 30 plus person firm today, exclusively in, you know, med tech, which I call health tech today, actually. And mm -hmm. we can dig into that further. Yeah. That's great. I mean, I, and I love those moments. I mean, there must have been a moment when you sat there wondering what happened to the phone line and then debating whether or not to make that call back. And what happens if you don't make that call back? It's That's amazing. Right. That's right. So uh, you, you've, you've created many great vehicles to, to tell MedSec stories. I know you're an engineer and you look at it from an engineering perspective, but you, you must, and this is a softball question, but you must have a real passion for this, this industry. Did that oh my God. Yeah. develop instantly or or did it develop over time as you came to know the people in it? Med tech, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I think it's like anything romantically. We want to think about love at first sight. And, and yeah. I'm not sure if that's really true. I think retrospectively, when you're in a relationship with something and eventually turns into a deep love, you could rationalize it as, as love at first sight. But I, I think I was really intrigued with what they were doing and all the different ways to navigate the human body. And when I first taught my initial partner, Jim Weber, I said, think about it like a house, like you have an electrical system, got that. Then you have the ortho system, which is the studs. And then you have the plumbing, which is sort of the cardiovascular vascular system. And then when you start digging into that, and if I wasn't going to be an engineer, I was going to be a home builder. So it all started to get together for me. And then over time, I, I fell in love with the people because while they all went to work for a paycheck, I think without exception, every single one of them were there for a higher calling because they could mm -hmm. always make more money in another industry, but they were always reverting back, even in their selfish, most selfish moments, reverting back to the patient. Like there was a mission everybody was on. So I think that also 
continues to um, intrigue me and drive me forward with nearly every project I bring out of the ground in all my companies that are related to health tech and med tech. That's really well said. Let's talk a bit about sort of the state of, of the med tech job market uh, mm-hmm. in terms of how has it been changed or has it been changed by the last year and a half by the pandemic? And, and are the changes lasting or are they fleeting? Yeah, great, great question. Yeah, no, they're they're here to they're here to look. I, I think there was a movement towards certain behaviors that clearly were accelerated with um, the the situation we're in right now with the pandemic. Uh, you know, I had gone on the record years ago that I think um, the salesperson in med tech was going to be compromised sooner than later. I had talked about it put out a big article about three years ago. I got a lot of heat on about being Amazon out of the business, uh, especially in the commodity type businesses. It just didn't make sense for the cost that healthcare was uh, incurring in the United States, 18% of our GDP. So, you know, ultimately you were going to be able to Amazon your medical, uh, your, your consumable medical devices for the most part. And if you weren't adding tremendous clinical value at the bedside or to the clinician, you were going to be compromised. Uh, so I think that's been accelerated. I think the virtual engagement now and not being able to walk into ORs or ICUs, CCUs, cath labs even, that's going to declare itself differently. So the sales function and how we interact with the point of sale, I think is going to change. So that's one. Um, The acceleration of virtual, uh, I think, in fact, Massachusetts, the first state for reimbursement, you know, not surprised on the virtual engagement with a clinician, physician, your doctor, that's changing dramatically. You know, you've got Proximy and you've got uh, Lavongo, uh, you know, uh, Joe DeVivo brought uh, his organization bought by them in touch and then Avail Med Systems. You've got this virtual engagement, this peer-to-peer network going on right now virtually. Uh, that is going to dramatically change um, how the med tech industry is going to sell, demo, install. I was just uh, at Transenteryx last week up in North Carolina. You know, uh, Anthony is doing unbelievable things with them. Keep your eyes on them. Uh, but they're, they, they, because they were installing a robot in Japan, I think it was, had to build a system on site to install the robot. Now they've got an entire product line that allows them virtually to proctor and install their robot. Corindus did it, uh, I think, also in Asia. Doug Teeny and his team mm-hmm. installed a full Corindus platform without ever stepping foot. Wow. So I think that's going to change the landscape a lot. Um, and then the patient empowered health, I think finally the public, and it'll be a certain demographic psychographic. I think the public now is pushing into managing their own health rather than being pulled into health by disease. So I think this pandemic has made a sensitivity around how fragile we all are. And you're going to start to see passive patient monitoring, which are going to be intelligent consumer devices, um, now start to creep into our lives, whether it's an intelligent toilet bowl or an intelligent toothbrush, you know, on the toilet bowl, the gut biome and the toothbrush gum health tied directly to cardiovascular disease to passive patient monitoring. And then services will now come around the aggregation of that data and I wrote about this last week where you may take a 23andMe-like test, see what you're predisposed for. And, um, you know, uh, genetics loads the gun, lifestyle and environment fire it. And so now you're going to start to see people really taking ownership of their health and preemptively getting ahead of what they're predisposed for. 
And you're going to see MedTech lean into that. You know, keep in mind, Johnson & Johnson's a consumer products company. Don't count them out into maybe being the first into, into the intelligent consumer devices because they, out of all the med tech giants, are the real consumer products company. Um, it's why you see Google with Fitbit and leaning in and mm -hmm. you know Amazon with, what is it, Whoop. And there's going to, Tom, there's a rush going on right now if you're paying attention to the passive consumer slash patient monitoring before they have to become a patient. I think that is going to dramatically change the health tech scene over the next three to four years. So, yeah, and I know Collar, the, the, the bathroom company, the faucet company has their own med tech unit now that they're building. Best Buy. Uh, yeah, Best Buy. So how does this, going back to the job market, is this the best time to be going into med tech because there's <laughs> yes. all of these opportunities or is it becoming more challenging because there's going to be a it's lot the more competition? Time. The best time. It's the best time. I just, I was just, presenting here yesterday. And so one of the things that's really cool about what's happening right now is forever, MedTech has been primarily an analog and a single device. Sure, there are other platforms, imaging and digital previous to this, but let's look at it on a whole. It's been a catheter or it's been an endolapro device, but it's been a non-connected single-use device that um, basically you got your use out of it and you were done. And there weren't a lot of software engineers in med tech and in, in, in contextual relative terms. And there weren't a lot of advanced double E firmware system level people. It was primarily a mechanical manufacturing operations, quality, brilliant people. But now what you've got is you've got, because it hasn't been a native digital play, you've got all this other great talent, these people who don't want to work on drones anymore. They want to make a robot or a digital system that's going to save their grandmother, right? As I, as we started out our conversation, there are people who want to aspire more than keeping somebody on a browser for 42 more seconds. And, <laughs> and, and, and I think they're all going to start to rush in. And what does that mean? That means that the product development platforms are going to start to expand dramatically. And we're going to be hiring more people that we never considered before because MedTech's been a closed ecosystem from a talent perspective. If you weren't in MedTech before and you tried to break into it 10 years into your career, even from military or DOD work, it was really hard unless you were like in image processing or you were in some advanced mm, data, well, not even data analytics. So I think what you're going to see now is People are going to get out of college and know it's cool to go be an engineer or a marketing person in health tech. And you're going to see me stop using it as med tech. It's going to be cool because look who just saved the world. Yeah, that, that, that's an awesome point. And, and, and there's no reason we can't have the cachet that went with, I'm going to work at Google or I'm going to work at Amazon. Look who just saved Facebook. the world, man. Scientists yeah. and engineers. Yep, that's right. Great point. So then... People who are looking to get jobs, to find new jobs, to, to find better jobs. I know you're a big pro a proponent of building brand, and I think you've moved on beyond using the brand term to, uh, to, to subject expert. Talk, talk a bit about how positioning yourself for a better job has changed. Mm. How, how, are, how should people be doing it? I think you're, you're kind of the, if I'm, if I'm looking to get fit and I'm kind of looking at this, this triathlete, in, that, in this regard, I think you're a triathlete. You're, going, you're doing so much on the social media side that we can talk about later. But what lessons should people take away from some of the things that you're doing to make themselves uh, more attractive? Yeah. So, you know, it, 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 it comes down to creating an awareness and attention around what you do. And that 
that model has held true, you know, previous time, previous to the last couple of years, it's called networking, but now we call it branding, <laughs> right? So the stuff, right. the stuff's the same. It's just, you know, now it's about scalability. So in the past, when you networked, it was usually a one-to-one peer-to-peer and maybe one person knew three people, but that nodal relationship was really one-to-one. So now if you think about networking, uh, and we can call, we can slide into branding on that and, and, and subject matter expertise, then scale to subject matter leadership, then scale to voice of an industry. You're really just looking at networking and you're networking and giving people a reason to pay attention to you, right? So, so if you're looking for a, not necessarily looking for a new job, you should, you should be branding yourself and networking when you don't need it. And that's the mm-hmm. advice I give to people is like, because when you, when you start networking and branding yourself um, and there's, there's an urgency to it, it does not come off well mm-hmm. at all. Um, so that's the first thing. I'd be start building my network and or brand and or expanding my reputation of who I am already. So when people come to me about branding, I'm like, no, no, put that word out the door. Let's call it, let's just expand your subject matter expertise and build your reputation around your expertise that you have whether it's hosting, you know, like device talks, or you're a software engineer, or you're a great marketing person. And the way you do that is right now today, at least, and I don't think this will change. This is the beauty of LinkedIn. LinkedIn is an education platform. It's not a job board. It's not a job posting board. If you sit back and you give it a real analytical perspective, it's an education platform. And the IQ on that platform versus other socials is just far and away higher on, on average. So therefore, if you, if, you, if you align your content with trying to teach people things without being pedantic and you know talking down, but just say, hey, here's what I do. Here's what I'm really good at. Let me write an article about it. Let me take an article in a magazine or a white paper and put it down. So like, what was it? Einstein who said it, if you can't describe some complex feature simply, then you really don't understand that. Right. So educate Mm -hmm. the market that, that would be the, that would be one thing. And then what's coming to Tom, and this leans into that is I can't wait for the day. And I'm going to be leading the charge that companies realize you're more than your resume. Hmm. And you're going to start seeing products coming out that will, by permission, allow individuals to sure put out their resume, but then put out some body of work that demonstrate they're more than the static resume that wasn't written specifically for that opening. Um, I think that's going to be a good branding opportunity in general as well. So I don't know if I answered your question, but it's sort of like a fun, a philosophical perspective. No, you did, and and I do think you're right. It's you, you shouldn't wait until you need that new job to to, or or until you want to change. I don't want to make it sound like you're grasping for something else, but I think people do uh, need to get themselves out there, and and that's why having a media like yours and, and and device talks, I think, is helpful for for everybody. Um, in your own postings, you you brought it before that you're you mentioned uh, Amazon moving into medtech. Some people like that stuff. Some people don't. Do you like reading that sort of material? Do you when you're posting something, do you take into account that this is going to be unpopular but well read? Do you you obviously don't just want to say what what other people want to want to hear? How do you sort of know when you're saying something important, but you're doing it in a way that's not going to cost you, or, or can you just not be afraid of that second part? 
Well, I have a couple um, rules. I, I always try not to insult somebody on my posting. Um, that doesn't mean that I don't want somebody to disagree with me, right? I, I do like critical thinking. Um, there's an interesting approach is it's hard to tell the truth, but it's easy not to lie. And so I always try and approach my postings that way. I, I try mm -hmm. not to talk poorly about people, um, but I always try and talk about subjects that I want you to think about provocatively. You know, generally when I talk about Amazon entering um, or I talk about, you know, uh, and especially Amazon, let's just go back to sales, right? Because I, I don't think I had one, one intentionally and I've been attacked a bunch of times online. Uh, one intentional attack of you don't know what you're talking about because it's so obvious that the commodity side of healthcare is going to be compromised by the best supply chain company in the world who already is buying into the pharmaceutical pharmacy business, who is already getting into insurance business, who already is the most trusted brand in the world digitally online. And if you can't look at that and extrapolate out that they're going to walk into this business, it's not going to be an Amazon rep showing up in the OR. Yeah. Right. So, so in that case, I put out what I think I've been in the business 30 years, more than 7,000 placements have been trusted by most of the CXOs in the industry. I get to sit in meetings that I'm blessed to sit in. I can sort of connect the dots, you know, I'm Tom Brady, of headhunting, right? That can see patterns occur on the field, <laughs> right? See the open receiver, yeah. sure. And then so, yeah. you know, that's what I put out. And I, I hopefully I put out thoughtful things for people to go, huh, I never thought it that way, or I thought about it, but I don't know how to put it into words. Well, you had the CEO of Proxmi on your show, one of your shows a couple of months ago. And that's a space actually that I think that you, you are seeing some great debate. We've talked to Avail and Explorer, and I'd love to talk to Proxima. And we've swapped emails. The, the 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 remote sales rep in the OR or remote connection to the OR. There there are sales reps out there and 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 surgeons out there who say there's no way I can deal do this without a a rep in the room. But there seems to be a real push toward these remote technologies. I'd love to understand what you're saying. I mean, you're you're on the front lines talking to the people who hire the sales reps and the sales reps themselves. How do you see that that sort of playing out? Hmm. So I, I think it's important not to not to put it all the, the entire category into replacing the sales rep. So I think when you look at the category, it's virtual engagement. So let's start mm -hmm. there. And now you can break that down into different categories. There, there's virtual engagement of people who are at home who have chronic care illness, which is 80% of that 18% of our GDP, who don't need to go to the doctor or have a hard time because of ambulatory issues getting to the doctor. However, I still need to have a look at their foot ulcer, or I still need to look at their, uh, they have to check in with me. Well, maybe a device like InTouch, which is part of Livongo, which is part of Teladoc now, is the right solution for that tele-engagement. And it's a different platform than Approximy, which is maybe a little bit more about peer-to-peer -peer scrubbing, maybe more about education, uh, maybe more about demo or, listen, not every interaction from a clinician's perspective is a critical interaction. But what if I could increase my adoptability and usability of a relatively new product and I'm there on call as needed? 
right? Mm-hmm. Because economically, it does not make sense to put a $400,000 a year rep out to make three calls a day to lean in. That's an antiquated system based on an analog approach. Should that disappear? No. But I think we should have a tiered system of engagement and support on behalf of the patient, not the doctor, on behalf mm-hmm. of the patient in this ecosystem. So, you know, Avail is one platform, Proximy is another, In Touch with Joe is another. I, I think they all have a space and there's room for all of them in there because they're sort of solving different problems to keep access high, cost low, outcomes amazing. And that's how you have to look at your health tech moving forward. Just focusing one more question on, on recruiting in the job market because I want to get into your portfolio. But uh, last year after the killing of George Floyd, many med tech CEOs stood up and made statements and made promises to, to, to deliver diversity and to make changes. Some were already doing that. Many were already doing that, to be fair. Uh, how What's happened over the last 10 months? Have you Do you see a palpable move toward making our, our med tech workforce look more like the general population? That's a tough one. You know, this is, um, I had Kwame Olmar on uh, when I was, uh, when we had, what was it, the last AdvaMed in Boston. He's uh, one of the founders of MedTech Color. We're also a big supporter, a platinum supporter of MedTech Color. So mm-hmm. um, I, like all MedTech companies, are supportive of uh, uh, inclusivity. Yeah, that, that, that's critically important. Um, I think there's a ton more work to do there uh, on that uh, uh, inclusivity. You know, you get into the bait of, the debate of uh, a quality of opportunity and then a quality of outcomes, right? So I don't think any um, uh, minority uh, population is interested in a quality of outcomes. I think all they want is a fair shot on goal on a quality of opportunity. So that that's a I think that's a position for everybody's sake uh, that we should start with. Now, a quality of outcomes. Um, is certainly something that is legislated and I disagree with. I know what the intention of it is. Um, but the, the, the toughest part of this is, and, and I have the numbers in-house because we were asked about this recently, when we broke mm-hmm. down the 350 searches we did last year successfully, I think more than 30% of them were female, right? Uh, I think less than... were people of color, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But that indexes, if you go to the professional ranks and above, right, four-year degree and above, that index is higher than the population of the industry. Mm -hmm. The challenge is, if we go down to just, you know, people of color, the challenge is, is, you know, there's, there's just not the population pool to pull from. So you're putting yeah. you're putting a you're putting a major ask on the executives who want to make sure that there's an equality of opportunity on the table, yet there is a very small mm, population to pull from from pre-existing experience in medtech. First of all, think about that. You've been around this industry for a long time, and then it's never been the coolest industry to go into. And I know there's an aggressive push at the university level to get into that. Right. So so you've already got a constrained pipeline of candidates to go after. And we're not the only industry that is looking for, you know, inclusivity and equality. Right. And so if we're not the coolest in the industry to go into and there's an incentive for the banking industry 
and the and the, and, the, and and other high tech industries to go after that you know diversity uh, and underrepresented population, then we're competing in an area that we've got to figure out another way to accommodate uh, creating that opportunity for. Um, you know, the less privileged population. So it's a tough one, man. It's a really, really tough one. And, you know, I'm, again, like, like other leaders in medtech, it's, it's, it's top agenda for us and all of our actions. Uh, you know, 60%, 60% of, our, uh, of our team, females, right? Um, so, and, and on, on our team, we've got, you know, a very diverse, a very diverse uh, part of TMG companies, very diverse, but it's a tough one. We do that competency rules, right? And then we want to try and make sure if we're in a situation where we can create an opportunity for somebody, if not, but for, we always do that. Um, but I, I just think that underrepresented population just wants the fair shot on goal mm -hmm. um, in regards to the privileged population uh, that just, you know, look, I was born on third base thinking I hit a triple just because I was born in the right place in the right zip code of the right skin color. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm, it's not lost on me that people are trying to get at bat from the dugout and they're just not getting a chance even to get at bat. It's good that we're having these conversations and we try to make it part of, it, of all of our discussions. And you're right. I think we need to start earlier on and really build the pipeline, but it's, it's good to talk about what are, let's talk about what you're, you're working on. You mentioned at the top that you're an engineer, that you have, you make plans, you, you build out intentionally. What are you trying to build or what are you building with, with the Mullings group? You've got, you've got your interviews, you've got your, 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 your true futures program. Uh, tell us a bit about your portfolio and, and where are you working? What are you working toward? Yeah, thanks for that opportunity. So, you know, TMG Search started 30 years ago. It was just my 30th uh, anniversary uh, in the middle of January. Oh, that was cool. I broke out some original notes and posted them online. I think it's got over 150 to 200,000 views now. And it's eerie because it's very close to who we are today. <laughs> so I think that's just a little lucky, right? Like bell bottoms come back around, <laughs> or, you know, might have changed a bit over the years. Um, so that's going really well. You know, we uh, more than 7,000 successful searches. You know, I think we're at least three and a half to four times uh, successful in those numbers uh, than any competitor near us. So we've been blessed that way and worked hard too with a great team. Uh, we've got True Future, which is a docu-series. We were in our fourth season now. We've been around the country. We've been to Israel. We've been to Germany. We've been to the UK, highlighting the amazing people, technologies, and cultures that make up our med tech, health tech industry. Uh, that That's going extraordinarily well. So think of Anthony Bourdain traveling the world, sitting with cool people. I get to play that role. Um, <laughs> <laughs> only we're, we're, we're sitting in cafes and beach, beaches in Israel and Tel Aviv talking about the tech and what these great people are bringing to the market. So um, that's, that's one. And then TMG 360, uh, we just launched that uh, this year. And that is intended to be directed at the emerging tech companies in the health tech world that are um, underrepresented uh, in the industry uh, because there are no other outlets that are either tuned into this heavy digital push moving forward, um, meaning imaging, navigation, robotics, AI, VR, and, you know, which is a decent part of our search business um, core base, but also telling the stories about these entrepreneurs 
and getting in deep and offering them a multi-modality level as they look for financing or they look for uh, 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 JVs um, or they look for clinical trial recruitment. Um, and we're highlighting them and working with them. And then we're also helping them build their brands. So we're coming in and giving them guidance on how to get awareness and tension online, on how to tell their story, on how to have world-class content development that we can facilitate through Dragonfly Stories, our full media company. And um, we've, I think we've got our first six customers as soon as we opened our doors, which is great. Wow. So are, are you a media, is 360 yeah. a, a media company or a, it's not a, it's not it's a marketing, not a marketing it's not firm a PR or a PR firm. effort? We call it a communications company. Uh, you know, interestingly enough, um, it's out in the public domain. So uh, Christy Kennedy, who was with MedTech Strategist, uh, came over and she's uh, uh, a COO there. Uh, Kayleen, who also came over from MedTech Strategist. Uh, was one of the, uh, I think, senior editors there. She's here as a vice president. So we're, yep. they're I know, the, I know them people. both well. So, they're excellent people. You know, we, and we have mad respect for MedTech strategists and we're a big customer of theirs. We just, we just saw the ability to take that industry and bring it into a media forward um, platform that is going to tell the stories that is, and, and we're there to tell stories first time. So we're, we're not there for you to write me a check the check is going to be a byproduct. The intention is to tell these amazing stories on a regular basis of these up and coming companies in health tech and give them a platform um, that if not before they would have ever had. So just one more thing. So there's probably a half a dozen people we're talking to now that are looking for financing. You can't go around and talk to VCs anymore, right? Because of the world we live in. And even when you could, it wasn't good use of your time because you were showing up at these shows like TCT and no venture people had time for you for the most part, right? But what if you came into a studio and or we can do it remote, we've done it remote and we set you up and you tell your story. And we usually want somebody who's at least done their A round because they already have their pitch deck down. They've already took heavy fire and we're setting up a studio that you can do live on LinkedIn, your pitch presentation to the entire industry. You better be ready and you'll get one hour to give your pitch and we'll have Q and A in this studio, you'll have Q and A and you'll be able to do your pitch. And our Mm -hmm. intention eventually is to have the VCs tune in from the comfort of their offices in Sand Hill or wherever. And you will then have potentially spoke to or had 80, 90 VCs in the health tech med tech world. So all this is indexing towards a media company. We want to build the biggest health tech, med tech, media company in the industry with, um, we've got the studio, we've got the talent, we've got the access, we've got the trust. So over the next five years, TMG company's intention is to build the biggest health tech media company in the industry. Wow. That's interesting. And this, and this was a plan that came forth before the lockdown, before the pandemic, because it sounds like it sounds like it, it really synced up with that whole dynamic that we've all learned to it was, it was when we started True Future around three years ago, we knew we wanted to create a, uh, like what we wanted to do is what Oprah did um, in her business. What she did is she got into that 
media business, but she owns all her own studio. She owns all her own talent. Um, everything is in house. Cause usually that's a 1099 world, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have all that talent in house, all the editing rooms, all of the great talent on photography and lighting and studios and, and back office. Uh, and our intention is to just put out mad content that people are interested in sort of understanding the stories on, and then being able to connect the entrepreneurs and the creators with the venture people, with the strategics and the amount of lean in we have now is, you know, people are calling to want to be on the show all the time. I mean, the, the acquisition by GTCR that just happened, um, with surgical specialties, right? We, mm-hmm. right. Um, Greg, who, um, we've worked with Lucier before they reached out and said, we want to be on the show and talk about the, of course, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, we want to, we want to continue to bring the amazing message of all the great things happening and give access to the small girl, small guy, where if not, but for you couldn't get on the stage We're we're, we're going to take down that entire barriers. If you don't have 50,000 to go to a show, cause you're a startup. I'll get you every day. I have a hundred and something sets of thousands of sets of eyes on me. I want to leverage that into technology, getting in front of people. Excellent. No, it's a great plan. I could, I could talk for another half hour on that, on that alone, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the times, the times are certainly are changing. So this has been great. It's been a lot of fun. I hope we can, uh, we can do this again. Thanks for, thanks for joining us on the podcast. You got it. All right. Well, that's a wrap, Chris Newmarker. Let's uh, let's tell the folks how they can find us on social. Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a new marker. And I'm on Twitter as well, at Newmarker. Great. And I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi, S-A-L-E-M-I. Salem with an I at the end, as my wife taught me to say. And I'm on Twitter, at MedTechTom. And I'm still on Clubhouse. I'm trying to figure out exactly what to do on Clubhouse, but follow me there anyway. And when I do figure it out, <laughs> you'll be there to enjoy our efforts. So uh, lots going on on the uh, the audio social world. So, well, that's a wrap. Once again, we are planning to uh, gather in Boston on October 4th and 5th. So circle those dates. Keep uh, We'll keep you informed here on the podcast as to what our plans are. You can also, uh, you don't have to wait until October to uh, hear great insights. Do uh, do check out Device Talks Tuesdays. You can get all that information on devicetalks.com. We've got a, a full lineup starting in March. And we'll be going taking you straight into the summertime with some really great device content. That's a wrap. Thanks, folks, for joining us on the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Please do subscribe. Please do tell your friends about the podcast. I was joking last week about not giving us rankings or comments, but if you'd like to do that, we certainly wouldn't mind. Ranking never hurt anybody, and it's nice to get some positive feedback once in a while. Right, Chris? A little pat in the back? Yeah, that always feels good. Yeah, yeah. a little attaboy. That's right. That's the way to go. You got enough attaboys there, Chris? Oh, yeah, you know, I feel good. good. Yeah, I'm, I'm confident. Good. good. <laughs> attaboy. I've got to thanks, Tom. <laughs> You're doing great too, man. Thanks, Chris. I heard the podcast is off the chain. <laughs> it, is. it is off the chain. We did have an attaboy last week. What are we talking That's about? That's right. Come on, man. You're getting greedy. You're getting Flavor greedy for Flavor himself. I can't ask That's for right. any more than that. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Tune in next week, folks. We'll have another great episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast waiting for you. See you soon. 
check one, two. This is Flavor Flav in the building. Yeah, that's right. I got a nice surprise shout out going out to my man, Tom Salemi. Yeah, that's right. Sulemi, baby. Congrats, Tom Salemi. That's right. Tom's podcast is off the chain. You heard me. You got me. You got me. You heard me. Flavor, flame in the building.